We are uh, second week of a series starting this new year called Leave Your Native Country. We recognize uh, that though we'd like to know the future, none of us do. Uh, though we look for people to help us, <laughs> give us some insight, predict the future for us, they don't really know the future. And so uh, all of us are in a situation of following God into the unknown. And it really is a story that we see throughout the Bible. Uh, it's a common uh, experience for people in the Bible, the characters in the Bible that we get to read about. They were always called, it seems, out to follow God into an unknown future and to learn to trust Him and to learn to walk with Him. And so we're looking at this uh, in this series at the life of Abraham. He's called Abram. Uh, as we encounter him in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to turn to Genesis 12, if you got your Bible or you want to turn on your phone, <clears throat> your phone app or your Bible app, uh, Genesis 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week, we started off looking at Abram's call to follow God, and uh, we saw how he navigated that, and we're just hoping to learn from him. You know, we're trying to discover how to walk with God and how to follow him. And the way in which we do that, in my experience, is to look at how God has uh, worked with people in the past, to see how, uh, how he interacted with them, and that helps me to see when he's interacting with me and what that looks like. And so would you just bow and uh, let's pray as we get started today. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the freedom we have to gather together to worship you in, uh, in freedom uh, under, uh, under your authority. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to learn from the life of Abram the man that you called to begin the Jewish nation, uh, to be a man of faith. I pray that you'd help us to see in his lives, uh, or in his life, to see ourselves and to see our walk with you and to learn from his example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So question, <clears throat> we're a few days into this new year. How are you doing? How's it going? Great? Good? Good. I'm wondering if uh, you feel like there's a storm coming or if you feel like you're in the middle of a storm. Sometimes life uh, throws things at us. Sometimes we see it coming. Sometimes we don't. Seems like more often than not, maybe it's just me. I'm not that smart. I go through life. I'm grinding away and all of a sudden something happens. A storm hits. A crisis. Uh it's been said that if you are not in the middle of a storm right now, just wait a couple days, right? The weather will change. It'll probably happen. You know, when storms and tests and trials hit, I'll be honest with you, I have a tendency to react to them. I know there's some people that I've watched, it seems like they don't react to anything. They just stay the same all the time. I'm not sure I trust those people, to be honest with you. <laughs> something, I don't know, man. Something, like I, when things hit, when, when things happen, man, I, I react. There's a Navy law that I found. It says this, if you can keep your head when all about you, others are losing theirs, maybe you just don't understand the situation. <laughs> uh, ignorance is bliss, right? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, uh, I can't help it. I, I react. If something happens, a storm hits, a crisis, and I'm there. You know, there's a story in the New Testament 
And I think this is how the disciples with Jesus were in this story. It's found in Mark chapter 4. You know, Jesus had spent a day ministering. His disciples were with him. They were serving people. And they got done. Jesus was teaching and everything. And they got done with the day. Jesus said, let's get in the boat. And let's cross the lake. We'll go to the other side. And so they got in the boat. And it was night. And they're crossing the lake. And all of a sudden, a storm hits. Well, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. He's got his head on a pillow, it says. And he was out cold, man. He'd been ministering all day and he was tired well the disciples are seasoned fishermen they they've spent their life in boats all right well this storm hits in such a way the nature of it the waves are crashing it says over the sides of the boat and it's filling up with water and they're scared and jesus is asleep and they go wake him up teacher don't you care about us man we're gonna die here wake up sometimes uh, that's how it can feel to us Storms hit, crisis looks like it's coming or we're in the middle of it, and we're wondering, is God even aware of the problem? Is he asleep at the wheel? Does he not realize what I'm facing? The Bible teaches us that God will test you in order to build your faith. But maybe you feel a little bit like Job in that, uh, you know, the testing, like you're, you're going, hey, um, I get it, I need to be tested, but can we at least meter this out a little bit? Job in chapter 7, you know, Job's a story of a test, a man that was tested intensely over a period of time. And I just love this. In Job 7, uh, 17, Job's talking to God, and he says, What are people that you should make so much of us, that you should think of us so often? For you examine us every morning and test us every moment. Why won't you leave me alone? At least long enough for me to swallow. Maybe you're like, hey, God, look, I get it. I need testing, but can we, can we get a break? You know, can I get a break from it? It's going on long enough. And we can get uh, frustrated and, t- and tired and exhausted at trying to walk through the test. It seems like they're always there. And listen, if you're trying to follow Jesus, you're tested with temptation. You're tested to go the other direction, to do the wrong thing. There really is, uh, in some ways, seems like life is one big test. But God tells us that testing is a way for us to prove who we really are, that our faith really is in him. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 says this, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, It will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter's saying, listen, the testing of your faith allows you to prove that your faith is real, that you really do believe in God, that you really are following him, that you really do belong to him. And in this little passage here is something really profound. He says your your faith is tested just like gold is purified. It's put in the fire, right? And the impurities come to the top and they're scraped off and that's the process of purification. Your faith is similar. It's got to go through testing to be purified and to be be made pure and and right and strong. And he goes, goes, it's going to be tested like gold even though it is much more precious than gold. Sometimes we don't realize, I hope you realize, that gold is important, okay? We need gold to live in this world. But at times we can think, if I've got gold, then the, the strength of my faith, the purity of my faith, it's not quite as important. 
But the opposite is true because gold comes and goes. Uh, gold is not something typically it's always there. We go through crises. We have seasons in our life. We don't have a lot of it. But if our faith is growing and strong and pure, it will sustain us through this life regardless of what we faith or regardless of what we face. Your faith is precious. It's important to pay attention to it. it is more valuable than anything else in this life. James tells us, Jesus' half-brother, he tells us that we can look forward to testing and trials. We can actually get to the point in our lives where we anticipate testing, where we go, hey, I'm looking forward to a test, a challenge, because I know the purpose in it. Now, this is not easy to attain to and to, to get to this point in life, but James says it's possible. In James 1, verses 2 and 4, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. He's like, listen, uh, your faith needs to grow and develop in, in order for you to attain to the place in life, the maturity in life that God wants you to get to. And so testing can be uh, an opportunity for you to be joyful and say, hey, all right, here we go. But the truth is, regardless of how we view testing and trials and difficulties, regardless of how we view storms in life, the truth is that when we step out to follow Jesus into the unknown, we will encounter difficulties. They will come. You will face them. When you follow Jesus into the unknown, a crisis will come. In Genesis 12, last week, you remember, we looked at uh, the story of Abram, and we saw how God came to him and called him and said, Abram, leave your native country and go to the land I'll show you. And we saw how Abram was a guy who his father, Terah, didn't worship the God of the Bible. He didn't know the one true God, creator God. He worshiped many gods. He was polytheistic, probably worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars, things like that. And so he didn't give Abraham a faith in the one true God. And so Abraham didn't know God. And so when God called him, this was a new experience for him, a new uh, opportunity, a new God that he was learning about. And so he did step out in faith and he went to the land that God would show him. He headed out. He knew he couldn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees. That's where he came from. And so he headed towards Canaan, towards the south. And when he got there, God appeared to him and said, this is the land I'm going to give you. I'm going to give it to your descendants. This is the place. And so remember last week, Abram worshipped God there. He built altars and he worshipped. Well, then we're going to pick up the story with this week. What happens next in Genesis 12, verse 10? It says this, At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. He steps out in faith. He steps out to follow God. He gets to the land. God appears to him. This is the place. I'm answering. Uh, I'm keeping my promise. I'm going to give you this place. And Abram's like, all right. I'm sure he's filled with anticipation, some excitement to see it build out, to see him, uh, you know, slowly over time, see the land become his and develop it. And, and he knew that God had promised to make him into a great nation. So he's going to have a bunch of children and he doesn't have any. And so he's excited about seeing all these dreams come true and all the fulfillment of this promise. And what is the next thing that happens? A famine hits. And he's forced to leave the land that he was promised. Famines will come into your life. And oftentimes they come 
just when you make a new decision to follow God in some way, step out in faith. Maybe it's to, hey, I'm going to overcome. I'm going to work to be obedient in this area where I'm struggling with sin, sin pattern. I'm going to move out in obedience. And just the moment you decide that, you step out in faith, a crisis hits, a famine hits. You're challenged. Man, did you really make the right move? (laughs) Is God really with you? We ask these questions because this is how oftentimes life goes when we're living by faith. Abraham had just made it to the promised land when this famine hits. And uh, the truth is that the solution to navigating a life of faith is to keep our focus on Jesus. It's to keep our focus on God. That's the answer to navigating the problems and the storms in life, to avoiding the pitfalls in life. It's to keep our eyes on Jesus. And Abram was new at this. He didn't know God. He didn't know all of what God was going to uh, command him to do or wanted him to do. And so maybe he has an honest uh, reason here that he makes some of the mistakes he does that we're going to see today. But the truth is, for those of us who know that we can access the truth of God by reading his word, by studying, we can find out what God wants us to do. Sometimes the truth is, we just don't want to know. We'd rather avoid knowing all that because then we feel as though we have uh, an honest reason to do what we want to do which is truly oftentimes our motivation. And yet, uh, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. If we look at him, then we're going to see life and its struggles in the right context. One of the early explorers of South Africa, uh, South Africa's ocean waters, was a guy named uh, Bartholomew Diaz. And he went around the Cape... um, And he went around the Cape on a stormy sea. And so his ship was threatened to be dashed to pieces. And so he called the place the Cape of Storms because of what he experienced. But Vasco da Gama, a sailor that came uh, came along later, he changed the name to the Cape of Good Hope because when he rounded the Cape, he saw the opportunity to get to India (laughs) and the treasures that were available there. As we go through life, we can call life a life of storms, a life of famine, a life of struggle, because if that's what we're focused on, then uh, it's really true. A lot of times, a lot of life is difficult, and we can just see it that way and identify that that's what life is. I could say, I've heard kind of a crass saying that you probably heard too about life, right? Um, And we hear those things, and sometimes we believe them. The truth is, when we live by faith, when we walk with God, we can see life differently. Instead of calling life a life of storms, we can call it a life of hope. Because in Christ, we have the opportunity to see purpose in struggle and in storms. The truth is that crises and storms in life are scary, and they can cause us great alarm. We do react. I think it's kind of normal to react. I personally think we have a little grace from God to react to a storm. Uh, I don't think you should let anybody, uh, you know, kind of look down on you because you react to a storm that comes, a crisis, a famine. The characters in the Bible reacted. Um, And I think we have a little bit of freedom from God to react. The question is, what do you do next? We can react, but I think we must adjust when it comes to our response or how we're going to handle a crisis or storm. It is there for a reason And when we put our trust in Christ and we follow him, 
The, the purpose of a storm again or a, or a famine is to grow us in our faith. And Abram panics a little when he faces the crisis that we're going to see today when this famine hits. But he's still listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is the faith chapter in the Bible. He's still listed there as a man who walked by faith, who lived an example of faith for us to follow. You've heard it said probably that your response is your responsibility. You probably heard that like, hey, you know, things happen to you and things are done to you, but your response is your responsibility. And I think that's uh, very true. I think in a crisis, your actions are your responsibility. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel scared. You may feel terrified. You may have a reaction emotionally to a crisis, but what do you do next? How do you handle it? Abram had a crisis and uh, he freaked out a little bit for sure. But he was responsible for how he handled it. And that's what I want us to learn from today. It's what I've learned from reading this story and looking at his life. What do you do next? Your first reaction to a crisis or storm will be to do what Abram did. You will want to use human wisdom to solve it. That's what you're going to want to do. Let's uh, continue looking at this story this morning in, uh, in Genesis 12 and verse 11. It says this, as he was approaching the border of Egypt... Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Might seem kind of crazy in our day and age, right? This was not crazy for Abraham to think of this could happen. It's reality. The world he lived in was violent, and this is how things worked. Think of David and Bathsheba, King David of Israel. He fell in love with Bathsheba. He wanted to marry her, so he had her husband killed, Uriah. Like th this, this happened um, in the time in which Abram lived. And so for him to see a crisis coming, to see a problem coming, and to react to it, he wasn't out of line. He wasn't uh, crazy to think this, this was a, uh, that this was a possibility. So he was, in a sense, forced to go to Egypt because of a famine. Egypt was uh, irrigated by the Nile River and the Nile River Valley. And they had developed um, irrigation systems to water their crops. And it was a very fertile valley for that reason. And the Nile was a consistent source of water. The land of Canaan, where Abram was coming from, <coughs> that God had promised him, was a land that required rain. It lived on the rain to water the crops and to uh, create growth and grass for their livestock. And um, we certainly know what it would be like around here if we just had the rain to sustain us and to grow crops. We wouldn't um, make it very long. And so this was the case. Uh, Abram found himself in a situation where he had to do something. In the Bible, famines are often identified as a, as a judgment from God. And yet in this case, that really isn't the indication of this famine. Though, I believe God was teaching Abram something through this famine for him to have followed in obedience, to step out in faith, and then he faces a crisis. Certainly, this is part of his growth and development uh, as he follows God. But his decision, his human reason was, I need to leave Canaan and go to Egypt. That's where there's provision. So let's go there. On the way, he recognized a problem that was real. These guys uh, don't know me. I don't have any relationships here. I'm not going to have protection here. 
As I come into this land, I have a lot of animals. I've got a lot of people in my household. And so there's a danger here because of my wife. Let me figure out how to do it. And so let's lie about it. Well, that was a huge issue. What Abram was really doing here, it's kind of subtle in the text. He was really prostituting out his sister, which was also his wife, right? We talked about how she was his half-sister, but he was prostituting her out. He was putting her out for this, um, this type of treatment. And though in his day and age, maybe that was normal, maybe it really wasn't that out of the realm of, of what they would have expected as people living in this time and era in human history, there was still a major problem with it for Abram because God had called him to something. God had promised some things to him and God had a mission and a plan for him that didn't involve uh, him putting Sarai in this situation, in this position. Because um, it was going to thwart, potentially derail what God had intended for him to do. Sometimes, as I said, we as believers today know where we can access the truth of God, the wisdom of God. And we're hesitant to do so because we really want to be free to do what we want to do. There's a school teacher who lost her life savings in a business scheme that had been elaborately explained by a a swindler. She had invested all of her life savings and when it disappeared, her dream was shattered. And she went to the Better Business Bureau and uh, told them about the situation. And they said, man, why didn't you come to us first? Did you not know that we were here? And she said, sadly, yeah, I did know that you were here. I've known about the Better Business Bureau. Um, I didn't come because I was afraid you'd tell me not to invest in this scheme. The folly of human nature, guys, is that um, even though we know where to find the answers, we know where to find the wisdom of God and the direction, and that the answers to life do lie in God's Word, oftentimes we don't want to turn there because we're kind of fearful that we'll find an answer that we don't like. Human nature or human reason is powerful. It lies at the very center of how we make decisions and how we navigate life. Listen, we all go through life and we face and encounter problems and situations. We find solutions to them. We find things that work for us, a way of behaving, a way of making decisions, a way of dealing with problems. This is natural and normal. It really is. And yet, we're called by God to live a different way to have different practices that we go by, different behaviors, different character traits that we uh, apply to our lives. I recently read a book called The Servant, and it's about servant leadership. And you know, in the Bible, Jesus talks about this. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to be the servant of all. And so he really creates an upside-down kingdom where those who want to be the greatest, those who are the leaders, are at the bottom, and they're serving people as we move to the top, right? And so Jesus inverts this, and servant leadership is his picture and his model of how to lead, and it's what he uh, exemplified for us. But this book talks about how we're called in a model of servant leadership to love those who are under our authority, those that we are responsible for. We're to love them. And of course, there's some problems brought up in the book by taking that approach to leadership. It's kind of soft. You know, are people really going to listen to that? Is it really going to work? And part of the problem is that human nature dictates that if we're treated poorly by somebody, we're going to treat them poorly back, you know? 
Um, and, and that's human nature. There's only so long we're going to put up with somebody that's uh, irritating to us or frustrating or giving us uh, difficulty. And so we're going to eventually get tired of doing this thing that God calls us to, which is to love them. And human nature is going to dictate at some point that we begin to treat them like we want to treat them. And so this problem's laid out in the book. Like, what do we do with this? We have human nature, and human nature pulls us away from this model of leadership and this way of living. And there's something interesting the book presents that I'd never heard before. I read the book, which is that a description of human nature as an excuse, because that's what we're, we're doing there. We're saying, this is too hard. How can I do it this way? It goes against my nature, you know, to love someone, <laughs> to love uh, someone that I'm leading. And so uh, he says something. It's maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit pointed and tough, but I think it's a good, a good illustration. He says, human nature, guys, Human nature, if we want to talk about what is human nature, it is human nature to urinate down our leg, you know, the pant, pants, uh, our pant legs. Like, that's human nature, right? When our bladder's full, let it go. That's human nature. That's what babies do. That's what children do, right? And yet, we expect children, even at a pretty young age, to stop doing that, to hold their bladder, right? So we can take the diapers off, and we can start to control our behavior, We're not just going to do what we naturally would want to do in a situation, right? And so we don't find any adults that are still doing that. (laughs) It's just babies, and we expect them pretty young to stop doing it, even little boys, which is hard. Little boys have a hard time, but we even expect them to stop doing it. And so uh, he goes, listen, human nature is not a good excuse. We can't really let ourselves use it as an excuse not to do the right thing, not to change our behavior. And I thought that was a good illustration. It's kind of tough. It's a little pointed, but it's true. What is it that we're using as an excuse to do what Abram did? He used his human nature, his human wisdom to get through a problem. And yet, it doesn't work. And I'm tempted, like maybe you are, to say, well, I know I got this issue. Maybe I got a temper or maybe I, you know, I don't know. I've got an issue here that's probably not great. It's probably what God calls me to do in my character, but it's just who I am. It's what my dad was like. You know, it's, it's a family trait. I don't know. We do those things, right? And we make an excuse to human nature, and yet God says, listen, <laughs> I'm calling you to live differently. I'm calling you to be obedient to me and to step up to another level of living. The reason that we can't just fall on human nature as an excuse for how we live is that following, uh, that it won't work. It's not enough to rely on human nature and human reason as we follow God into the unknown. It's not going to work. It's not going to get us there. Using human wisdom will cause problems. Let's continue reading in the story of Abram today in Genesis 12 in verse 14. It says this, And sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarai's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king. And Sarai was taken into his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her. Sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me? He demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them. And he sent Abram out of the country. 
along with his wife and all their possessions. Human nature, human reason, if we use our human wisdom to get through the storms of life, the crises of life, it's going to cause a problem, especially when we're following God, when we're trying to get to the goal and the mission and we're trying to realize the the vision that he has for us. It's just not going to work. It falls short. Abram, his human reason, led to some significant problems for him. First of all, he put his wife at risk. She was to be the mother of the Jewish nation. God said, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. They're going to be, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky, the sand on the shore. And, and Abram jeopardized that because of the decision he made, because of the problem that he was facing and the storm he was encountering. And so God actually had to get involved and stop it from happening. He sent plagues on Pharaoh and stopped Pharaoh from going this direction. It wasn't because of what Abram did, made the wrong decision. He brought down judgment on Pharaoh's house because of his lies, because of his decision to, make, uh, to use his own reason, his own wisdom to discover what to do. He didn't go to God for help in deciding what to do. I think it's interesting, though, here Pharaoh, a pagan king, still recognized it was wrong to lie about the situation. You know, he wasn't going, hey, why, did, you know, why didn't you do what God told you to do? I mean, lying and being deceptive in the situation was still something that even Pharaoh recognized was wrong. And Pharaoh recognized because of what God did to him, he figured out what was happening. And then Abram also didn't reflect a faith that would point others to God because of the way he handled it. As followers of Jesus, when we choose to use our human reason, we get through things using our, you know, our human wisdom and we do stuff that God is the opposite of what God calls us to do, we do the same thing. We don't point people to God. The only reason that Pharaoh understood there was a God that was orchestrating uh, you know, Abram's life is because <laughs> what God did to him, because of the plagues and the, and the persecution he brought down on Pharaoh. It wasn't because of Abram's actions the way he was living wasn't pointing Pharaoh to God. When we use our human reason, our human nature, it produces problems for ourselves and others. We testify to God when we act in obedience, when we live in accordance with what God wants us to do. Abram is learning to live a life of faith. God is teaching him how he should live, what he should do, um, if we're to become transformed disciples of Jesus, then we got to walk through that same process. And there's situations I'm sure you've encountered, storms and crises where you didn't do what God would want you to do. You, you uh, listen to the emotion. Maybe you listen to uh, your own reason and wisdom as to how to handle it, and you did it that way. And now you kind of carry some guilt and some remorse, regret for how you handled it. That's kind of what happens. Fortunately, God's grace, his forgiveness is enough to cover over our, um, our sin and the things that we do that goes against what he wants us to do. If we're to learn to live by faith, though, guys, faith is like a muscle, and it's got to be worked. It's got to be uh, used, exercised. You know that a muscle grows because it's torn, right? And then it builds back, and that's how a muscle grows, and faith has got to be tested. It's got to be uh, stretched in order for it to grow we've got to use it <laughs> we've got to step out and decide listen god i'm facing a crisis it's difficult i don't really feel like doing this but i'm gonna obey you i'm gonna i'm gonna take 
uh, your instruction and your wisdom and put it to practice here. I'm going to try it. I'm not sure it's going to work. I'm not sure it's going to solve the problem, but I'm going to try it. And see, that's how we learn to live by faith, that it will work, (laughs) that God does back us up when we follow his direction. Faith for Abraham would be learned, hard fought. This test is small compared to some others that he will face. And yet because of the lessons he learned here, we can see growth in his life. It's the only way to determine that our faith is real is that it's tested and that we, we uh, respond to it. Fake faith is not really of any value. And in our world today, we have a great challenge. There's always a great challenge for us as people who are trying to live by the word of God. We're trying to follow Jesus and we're taking the scripture seriously. We believe it's God's word, his revelation to us. And, and we're trying to follow that. There's always tests for us. There's always a challenge. And one of the biggest challenges that I see in the world today is something called progressivism. And it's an idea. It's a philosophy. It, it's, it filters into politics a little bit, but it's not just there. It kind of started to emerge in our world in the late 1800s. And it's an idea that what's in the future is better than what's in the past. Truth is in the future not in the past, and it can put pressure on us because what we believe comes from the ancient past. And when there's a philosophy and a mindset and even a religious belief that says, hey, no, that's old-fashioned, you need to move into the future and change, or you're in the wrong place, we got a problem. And so we're under pressure today in our world to move towards something, a belief system and a way of living and believing that looks a lot more like Um, what makes you feel good than what is true. And so that's the nature of the new, I'll call it a new religion. I kind of call it a cult sometimes, but because it forces people who say they're Christians away from a biblical view, worldview, into a different worldview. It shakes us loose from our, our morals and our belief system and the truth that we hold to. And this happens. We see young people get to college and, and there's professors trying to shake them loose from their conservative beliefs, right? The belief in the Bible and what it says, move away from that. No, that's, that's old-fashioned. You've got to move into the new future. It's a challenge for us. There was a pastor that taught a confirmation class. And he would get his students into the class, and the first day he would show them a jar of beans. And the jar of beans, uh, he would say to them, I want you to guess how many beans are in the jar. And so they'd all put down a number, and he would create a chart on the wall with their names and their guess as to how many beans were in the jar. And then he'd tell them how many, and they'd see who was closest. And then he'd create another list next to it, which is, what your, what's your favorite song? And so they'd start to list their favorite song on the list. And then they got to the end of that list, and he said, which one is true? And he said, professor, or, or pastor, it's not about a song. Your favorite song isn't about which song is true. That's not what you're determining by. It's, it's a matter of taste and preference. And then he said, which do you think is more like choosing your faith? Is it more like how many beans are in the jar, that guess? Or is it more like what's your favorite song? And almost all of them would say it's more like picking your favorite song. He was kind of devastated by that. And a man who was talking to him about it said, what do you do with that? He said, well, I try to argue him out of it. Um, Choosing our faith and our belief system is not just a matter of preference and choice, right? There's truth involved. How are we navigating that? Are we looking for what makes us feel good, a belief system that we like because it gives us the right feelings, it matches our sensibilities, or are we looking for the truth, right? What does God say? Who is God? 
What has he done? How has he spoken to us? And do we stand on that? Is that what we're looking for? You will need to learn an important lesson in order to pass the tests that you will face in a life of faith. A life of following God. There will be situations, circumstances, people that will try to shake you loose from your faith. And one of the lessons that we need to learn, so important, is that you will need to learn to fear God and nothing else. Mark chapter 4 is the story I told you in the beginning of the disciples out on the lake. And the storm hits and Jesus is asleep and they say, wake up Jesus, we're going to die. And the story concludes this way. Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped. There was great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and the waves obey him. They were scared of the storm when they encountered Jesus, the Son of God, who speaks and the waves stop. (laughs) The wind stops. They were terrified. They recognized who it is that they should be afraid of. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God, who will destroy both body and soul in hell. We should fear God. And if you're going to walk a life of faith and you're going to move through this life and you're going to face famines and storms and difficulties, they're going to come. And as you step out and follow Jesus into a life of faith, they're going to come sometimes even harder. You've got to figure out who to be afraid of. Who, it is that you, who is it that you're going to fear? Fear is real. It's a big motivator. There's a little boy that um, was uh, getting tucked into bed one night by his mom, and there was a severe thunderstorm. He was terrified. As mom turned out the light, he asked her in a trembling voice, Mommy, will you stay with me all night? Smiling, his mother gave him a warm, reassuring hug and said tenderly, I can't, dear, I have to sleep in daddy's room. Long silence followed at last. It was broken by a little shaky voice, said the big sissy. (laughs) Maybe you need to have Jesus speak into your storm. Fear's real. Uh, It's a real thing. And where our fear is aligned and who it is that we fear matters a lot. It's going to dictate what decisions we make. Do we move in obedience to a God who really um, is all-powerful and overall, or are we afraid of the storms in this life? Are we scared of the things that we face here? We've got to learn to place our fear in God and to walk in obedience to Him, and that's going to allow us to handle these situations, to navigate them, and in no way do I make light of the storms that we face because they're real, they're scary, they're powerful. They threaten us in our lives. And yet we serve a God who is overall. He's able to calm the storm or he's able to give us strength in the middle of it. Remember that when we pray for God to uh, come into our storm and address it, the truth is that sometimes the Lord calms the storm and sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us and your call to us to follow you into the unknown, to step out in faith and to learn to live by faith. 
And Father, we confess that it's hard for us to do as human beings. We trust what we can see, what we have experienced, what we know. It's hard for us at times to let go of those things and to trust you. But I pray that you would continue to work in us, work in me, work in each one of us here that we might grow to become stronger in our faith, both so we can navigate this life and the storms that come, but also so that we can help point other people to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.